Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Mr. Steve Hoffman, who is the CEO of Founder Space, a Silicon Valley-based incubator and accelerator. He is also a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of several books. Welcome, Steve. It's fantastic to be here, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this on a weekend. Um, so, so we want to talk about your latest book, The Five Forces That Change Everything. how technology is shaping our future um it's a fantastic book a uh, lot of interesting ideas interesting things in there so so i want to go in sequence uh, uh through the book um so your five chapters appropriately <laughs> for the five forces uh so force one you say is mass connectivity so when i was skimming through this steve i was thinking I was at a large pharmaceutical company in the in the 90s in the mid 90s but internet was really sort of taking off and in meetings with senior execs uh you know discussions was you know is this really going to change business and and all of that and nobody believed <laughs> it's going to have any effect on the pharmaceutical business and as both of you both of us know um it had a significant effect so 20 25 years later now we are talking about sort of a different type of connectivity right different type of mass connectivity sort of a new internet is that what you're talking about yes so right now the internet has been a huge revolution in connectivity and it was followed by mobile a really mobile internet which took it to a whole another level and we saw a wave of innovation new apps and a changing of the landscape from everything from researchers and education through industry now uh we are on the cusp right now of the next step and the next step will really be involve different technologies coming together converging together so one of these is brain computer interfaces these are 
when we can actually read our brainwaves, whether it's inserting a chip in our head like Elon Musk wants to do, or a non-invasive device like the Muse, but much more sophisticated. Reading our brainwaves, how will that affect things? How will that change? Instead of tapping into a phone or tapping on a computer, which is very slow, uh, we may have the ability to simply think and access the cloud, think and access the internet, and potentially uh, combine our brain power in various ways that we don't even understand now. And if you take that technology and also combine it with augmented reality, advanced augmented reality, much more sophisticated than we have today, virtual reality, then you start to get a landscape out there where, where we're navigating cyberspace. It's all around us and inside us. Like it's literally inside our head, changing our thoughts, perhaps bringing up mental images. It's also the, the physical world is uh, combined with the digital world in a way that we have not experienced before in a way that will profoundly change, you know, how we live our lives, how we do our business, how our governments are run, everything. Yeah, it's really fascinating, Steve. So it's sort of an interface change, right? Um, we keep our brains sort of private so far. And then we go to a device, we put some information in there, we get some information back, and then we process that information privately in our brain. Um, so if that interface changes, uh, as you say, I think in the book, suppose we sort of open source our thoughts uh, in some sort of a new interface, then things really dramatically change, right? We, a lot of issues crop up. So first of all, privacy. So right now we have a degree of control and granted, a lot of people are saying we've entered the post-privacy era simply because there's so much of our information online, whether it's from our social networks, whether it's from transactions we've done online, you know, hospitals, everything is going online. All our information is going online. Uh, we have lost a great degree of privacy. We've already seen that with the internet. But you can imagine when you have a device that can literally access your thoughts, what does that mean for you? Like, what could you keep private? Now, there are companies out there like Facebook that are investing right now, today, in brain-computer interfaces. And they are telling people, trust us, we won't even, we, our brain-computer interfaces won't access your inner thoughts. They'll only access uh, uh, thoughts that you give us permission to, to access through various ways, various technologies. Question is, do you trust Facebook? Have they been a good steward of our data so far? And are they representative of what we're going to see in the future, but to the nth degree? Like we, we are potentially entering a world where nothing is private. Our innermost thoughts, we cannot shield. Because literally, once somebody has access to your brain, once you give them access, potentially, uh, you know, you can send out commands as thoughts to the internet to trigger things from turning on a light to starting your car to text. Instead of texting, you would have mind to mind communication, literally your thoughts going out to other people, but all the way down to the ability to write, which DARPA is actually working on read, write brain computer interfaces for the military. And by write means actually injecting information into your brain, whether it's images that form in your brain, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, a voice that speaks in your brain. We don't exactly know how that's going to happen or how it works or even the degree to which it will work. But we can imagine, we can begin to imagine today 
that you could potentially write over memories in somebody's brain. You could potentially uh, uh, combine thoughts of different people's brains actually working together. And this may seem like to a lot of people out there like science fiction, but those who have researched it, you know, in our universities and, and in corporations have gone deeper uh, that there's, they have shown actually that you can write over memories. You can literally do that. They have done experiments at Duke University where they've literally transferred thoughts from one living animal to another. And it's been with monkeys and rats so far, but at Brown University, they're doing experiments now with human beings where they can text to each other. So all of this technology, I mean, it's in the labs being developed today and it's been proven to work, but it hasn't been commercialized, mass marketed. But that day is coming and it's not as far out as many people think. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So the brain is a sort of an electrochemical magnetic device. And we have figured out how to sort of use all those channels <laughs> outside the brain. So one could imagine we could actually use them uh, from a brain perspective in the future. So there, there are two things there. One is, can you upload and download information using a channel? And the other broader question is, uh, suppose, you know, just like internet, you have an IoT sort of a process. You, you basically connect, you know, 8.4 billion brains into a network. Um, that has a lot of social and political implications, right? Is that, is it, that what it, you're thinking? Yeah. It really has very profound implications and very scary. So there's huge benefits to doing these brain computer interfaces. We will be able to potentially experience things we've never been able to experience. Even uh, right now, biohackers are out there and they're actually taking technology and, you know, they're embedding chips in, you know, RFID chips in their arms. They're embedding magnets in their fingertips so that they can actually get sensations uh, that they couldn't otherwise get. They have infrared, uh, you know, where it'll translate infrared light into vibrations on your skull, all sorts of things that are really cool. We have to remember that our brains are uh, black boxes. They are, you know, these black boxes and everything our brains uh, gets is simply a signal. So reality will start to be created. A new reality for us can literally be generated through these brain computer interfaces. And that reality will be uh, generated by someone. Is it a corporation? Is it a government? Are these, you know, nonprofits? Are they other individuals? The, you will be, will be living in a world uh, that is both virtual and real at the same time. You know, this mi truly mixed reality future, I call it a multimodal existence, and it's fascinating. Like we will be able to do things that you never ever dreamed possible. But at, you know, for example, let's say you have a brain computer interface and somebody else does. They're getting a signal through their eyes and ears. Could you potentially see through their eyes, have that signal transferred to you, hear through their ears? You know, emotions, these chemical reactions in our body, could we pick up on those, digitize them and send them to another person? Could you feel somebody's happiness or sadness? Truly revolutionary, like revolutionary. But if you can imagine feeling someone's happiness or seeing through their eyes, there's the same potential uh, for abuse. So on a social level, uh, it, would it be possible 
without us knowing it, to start to reprogram us. We already know, you know, advertising does this on a daily basis. We've seen that a simple thing, a very simple thing like a Facebook feed can influence a massive number of people in our population to believe crazy conspiracy theories and things like that. Well, that's nothing compared to if somebody gets in your head. Like if some, you know, right now on the internet today, so we can have our identity hacked. Like somebody can steal our identity and they can, you know, make our life miserable running up credit card bills or, you know, taking out loans under our name, doing, you know, ruining our credit, doing things like that. However, if somebody hacks your brain and they actually have the ability to start to write over your brain, they not, when they steal your identity, they could literally steal you. And they did an actual experiment out there where they had a rat and this rat uh, was going through a maze and it had a brain computer interface, a uh, chip in its brain. And a human being had a non-invasive brain computer interface. And the human being with its thoughts could literally control the rat through the maze, control it. And the interesting thing was the scientists determined that the rat didn't even know it was being controlled. So you think about this power, you know, it's sort of like everybody's going to be a, a paranoid schizophrenic in the future, <laughs> think they're being controlled. And they might be like literally governments out there uh, could use this technology to control people without them even realizing it. That is a possibility. And what we haven't even begun to address is the uh, how are we going to control this technology? How are we going to limit it? How are we going to stop certain governments or institutions or corporations from really abusing this power, uh, either on purpose or maybe not even on purpose? Maybe it just evolves in a certain way, like social networks, where there are negative effects that ripple through society and, and, and really uh, have profound effects on our social institutions and our lives and, and politics and everything else. We have not begun to discuss this. So my, like I write about this in the book, The Five Forces, I, I, I start to say, we need to be talking about this now because these devices, they aren't that far in the future. You know, they may be a decade away. They may be two decades away before they're commercialized. Brain computer interfaces, you know, the Muse right now, you can buy on Amazon for a few hundred bucks. Now, granted, that's a very limited device, but the devices are here, you know, and Big companies like Google, Huawei, uh, you know, Facebook, all these companies, they are working on this technology. Apple, they are looking at how they can create not Android and iOS of the future, but a brain operating system of the future. Literally a brain operating system that is designed to interface with these devices and start to use our, uh, access our minds directly. So how, my question to you and, and the audience out there is, where do we start? How do we, because if we do like we did with social networks and we just let them do whatever they want and then fix the problems afterwards, we saw the damage, you know, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah. yeah. But with brain computer interfaces, it's so much exponentially more powerful. It, we might, there might not be going back, right? <laughs> Once, mm. you know, there, you know, if a government starts to use this, you might not be able to go back and, and reverse it. It could have, you know, really, uh, it could have, uh, it could uh, dehumanize us in ways that we haven't thought of. So these, these, that's why I wanted to bring this up. So the only way we can create good policy around new technologies is to start dialogue early before they're fully deployed. Yeah, I mean, so let's think about this, Steve, a little bit. So um, 
I had another podcast recently. I mean, we have more than 200 different countries. They have sovereign rights to do whatever they want to do. We don't have an international organization, it appears to me, that, that has any sort of policy control around any of this. And so, you know, US and EU could come out and say we have a set of prescriptions as to how to do this, but that's only a billion people. We have, you know, 7.4 billion people out there that, you know, who could do whatever they want to do. So, so do you think do you think as humans, the eight, four, I'm thinking about the 8.4 billion people, 200 different countries, do you think we have any control over what, what, you know, what's happening? We do. We have a great degree of control right now in certain countries. So uh, in a democracy, let's say, like the United States, we, uh, we have control over uh, influencing our politicians to actually address issues like this. But without social pressure to do so, uh, the problem is most politicians don't understand this technology. Most people, even in technology, don't fully understand the implications of the technology they're building, especially on a social level. So uh, very well-meaning people could unleash a technology uh, that is uh, disruptive both in good and bad ways to our society. Uh, and how can we predict how these technologies will be used? You know, for example, just a corporation that wants to mine your data, like data is super valuable. What data would be the most valuable in the world? Well, what's inside your head, what you're really thinking uh, would be incredibly valuable um, to use for people. But can this data then be used to manipulate people, uh, both, you know, overtly and, uh, you know, you could manipulate people without even knowing it in certain ways, just by how this te technology, the different applications that come out to use this technology. So um, what we need to do is we need a, a, a group of people. It can't be everybody because most people don't understand this technology, but people who do understand it at a very deep level to be actually looking at the possibilities, laying those out and, and suggesting policy changes now so that we could potentially put the brakes on certain technologies before they're wi they, they pro proliferate widely and are being used by lots of different people for lots of different purposes. Yeah. And, but it's not simple. The problem is it's not simple. Nobody wants to slow down innovation. Nobody wants to you know, cripple the United States as opposed to other companies by limiting development of brain computer interfaces or many of the other technologies I discuss in the book that have both good and bad uh, possibilities. So what do we do? That, that, what, do, what can we do now? Yeah, so there's a two complications there, right, Steve? So one is the read issue. So if somebody can read your brain, um, that information could be used in some way. And a more complicated issue is the write issue. Uh, if somebody can write into your brain, then that's a, that's sort of end of humanity in some ways. Right? In some I'm ways, thinking, it potentially yeah. could be because literally a uh, uh, nefarious government could start to program its people, you know, block certain thoughts, you know, get people to do exactly what it wants them to do. And that is really scary because what we are as human beings, at least what we believe we are, is that we believe we are our free will, our, our ability to make decisions. If you 
if you can interrupt that ability, and we know historically, you know, many governments have tried to control their people to an extreme degree. And if they had this technology, would have they, you know, would have Stalin used it? Would have Hitler used it? Well, almost certainly they would have. And the re, and the and what would have come out of that would have been awful, right? <laughs> Absolutely awful. So um, now that this technology is approaching uh, to be actually viable, uh, we need to think about that. And then there's much more uh, benign things. Just simply, you can imagine brain-computer interfaces combined with AI, because AI gives you the ability. You can't have one without the other, right? Brain-computer interfaces and artificial intelligence will, will work together, because artificial intelligence will allow you to process all this data. Artificial intelligence will drive the, the actual operating system of your brain. So we still have a long way to go to figure out how our brains work. I mean, there's still mysteries to us, but we're starting to figure it out. You know, at University of California, San Francisco, you know, they were actually plucking uh, uh, the, uh, the, what a person was thinking, the thoughts out of their head, you know, in, in, their ex in the experiments they were running with brain-computer interfaces to, to actually begin to take what the voice that we all have in our head, that little voice that speaks to us, and actually digitize it. So, that is happening at the moment. And I personally work with a lot of startups in this space, brain computer, because it fascinates me. Um, and I've worked with some major, some of the world's largest corporations that have been looking into it. And I tell you, uh, they are pushing the boundaries. The boundaries are being stretched as we speak. So we're going to see a wave of these technologies, but it's not linear. So we're going to see technologies that are available today you know, that most people, most brain computer interfaces today are going to be focused on medical uh, things. For example, people who are, are victims of strokes and literally they're, 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 they, they have no quality of life because they are either have locked in syndrome or, you know, severe problems where they can't move their body and, do, and communicate and function. But with these brain computer interfaces, getting them one today, you know, in these, in the experimental ones that they have, they can actually control a robotic arm and feed themselves. They can think and send text messages. They can drive themselves around in wheelchairs. They can do all of that today, like with human beings with brain chips in them. So that's great for these people. Uh, the question is that next step as, as we miniaturize and perfect this technology, which will take a while, but it will come. Uh, then, you know, my fear and my fear is that the technology itself will be so powerful and so seductive, and this doesn't apply to just brain-computer interfaces, but really to artificial intelligence, you know, gene editing, all these things. There'll be so many amazing applications that will truly enhance our lives and can change people's lives for the better that we will adopt them. Like, literally, think about it. If everybody in your workplace, you know, wherever you work, is using this advanced technology to heighten their intelligence. You know, a brain computer interface, maybe they have some gene editing done so that they're smarter and healthier and get sick less days and they become the new standard. How could you not get a brain computer interface? How could you not get, you know, you know, some gene therapy? How could you not use artificial intelligence to to its maximum potential when these technologies allow you to actually function in society and without them you seem like a neanderthal <laughs> you seem like somebody who's you know literally you won't be of much value or use you won't be able to contribute you know our cell phones that we have today you know i remember the day i'm old enough to remember people say yeah, I'd, I'd never carry one of those around <laughs> wherever i go you know i don't know almost nobody 
who, who goes without a cell phone, like a smartphone, for example. And we may come to the point where almost nobody goes without a brain-computer interface, no matter what we think today. Yeah, it's really scary, you know. Uh, Hitler and Stalin are gone, um, but we have similar uh, leaders uh, in the world around today. Um, we do. Including uh, some of the recent presidents and, uh, in, you know, uh, existing prime ministers um, around the world, uh, they're not too different. So if the technology is widely available, I'm pretty sure they want to use it. Absolutely. So. You know, they want to control people. They don't necessarily want people to hear the truth. They want them to hear whatever reality they create. There's no better way to get people to, to buy into these realities than uh, feeding it directly into their brain, than using our, we already see uh, different groups, whether it's Russia or other internal groups, you know, using artificial intelligence uh, to create misinformation, to uh, create conspiracy theories, to get people thinking things, you know, and acting, actually behaviorally acting in ways that are potentially against their own self-interest, even though they don't know it, um, and that are very disruptive to our institutions and our freedoms that we value so much in this country. So we are we are going to be faced uh, with this future world where, you know, unfortunately, unless we take proactive steps, uh, democracy and our ability to have free speech, our ability to have more control over our lives, our ability to elect our representatives with, you know, honestly and fairly, you know, that could be at, at, at serious risk. Like we've already seen, it's, it's at risk. But uh, these technologies amplify the, the possibility of, of, of certain parties monopolizing the power of these technologies. So the thing is, the first group, let's say, that doesn't have good intentions, that takes these technologies that, are being, that will be deployed over the next couple decades and actually uses them to consolidate power and, and control society, will we even be able to displace them in the future? Like, will they be able to remove all the ability for um, our, in, our checks and balances and other institutions for people to exercise their free will and actually then remove them? There is a possibility, you know, George Orwell was predicting, you know, when he wrote 1984, and the technology in 1984 is very crude, right? If you look back, but you know, his prediction was essentially that, that people will in the future use these technologies to control the masses. And I think um, it's not unrealistic to see that who's ever in power will use the technology uh, to benefit them uh, and, and allow them to maintain power uh, to their maximum ability. So what forces and what institutions can we set up now as safeguards? What can we do now to lay the framework and the foundation that's solid enough to withstand an attack that we know will be coming? Yeah, I mean, this is my fear, uh, Steve. So mathematically, I don't really see a way out. So if you say, um, you know, we, we have two different uh, sovereign uh, nations, uh, who, you know, they could pursue whatever policies they can, they can do. Um, you could put some constraints on some of them, uh, but it, it also it sort of makes the problem worse in the sense that all that is going to do is to push development to areas 
that actually could make it even worse in the in the in the, in the longer context, right? And so, so I don't really see a solution, right? I mean, we, we see the the all the bad effects of this that that could happen. You say it's sort of a binary outcome in the sense that once you are in it, you know, some X Y C guy in in some A B C country gets hold of it and and want to really sort of change 300 million people into robots, uh, he or she can do it. Uh, even with the current technology, he or she can do it. But we have no sort of universal policies around this. We we haven't even started thinking about what the right policies are. We have not. And it's going to be very hard uh, to get our politicians who have very limited understanding of this technology and its implications to especially the next generation. When they're just trying to grapple now with Facebook and, and, and Google and the current crop of companies, but they, they aren't even, you know, they can't even do that very effectively, let alone think about these exponentially more powerful technologies that are literally in the pipeline. And, and will be coming. So, and it's not just brain computer interfaces, that's just one example. So, you know, it's a whole host of these technologies. You know, in the book, I go through five chapters. So one is really around mass connectivity, which I focus on the brain and, and creating this, the, the, the new reality that we'll be in, the new way we'll communicate. The second chapter, bioconvergence. We have gene editing technologies. What if one country out there decides that it wants to make superhumans, literally change the human race because they have figured out that they could edit and they can make people much healthier, much better looking, much longer lifespan, much smarter. This might already be happening, Steve. Uh, I, I have a nagging feeling this is already happening in I, some countries. I've heard uh, the same thoughts. We don't have any proof of that yet. So I'm always, I always try to stick to you know, we, when, when we're talking about current, the current world, I try to stick to the, what facts we, we know. So we don't know. But we know a lot of companies are investing very heavily. In, a lot of countries are investing very heavily in gene editing technology because they see the potential. And let's just say it's one country. We could say Russia. You could say any other country, right, that, that says, OK, we're totally open to that. Like our side, we're going to fund them and they're going to create superhumans. Well, does the United States stand by and say, no, 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 that's not ethical. We're not doing this. And suddenly, all, you know, our brain power, our ability, you know, it doesn't help. We, doesn't we're going to be further, we're further behind. So there, it's just like AI right now. So in the world, AI military, right? Most people would agree. Do we want super intelligent killing robot, killing machines out there that can, you know, use machine learning and all the advanced technology to, to wipe out human beings? Do we want to develop them? Most individuals would say no. Yet when you look at it at a geopolitical context, you know, if you don't have the latest AI and you're, the other country does, you've already lost the war. Like, they, you know, we're seeing right now that our old aircraft carriers and, and battle cruisers and tanks, they don't, a little drone, a swarm of dro small drones can literally wipe them out at a much lower cost using advanced artificial intelligence and, and other technologies. So the future wars will be fought autonomously. Like if, you know, right now the military likes to say, oh, we'll have a human in the loop. Like, so these things don't go out of control. But let me tell you, humans slow things down. Our brains are slow. You know, if it's a battlefield where every millisecond counts, you know, well, these machines are fighting and you have a human in the loop, you've already lost. Like, so the human in the loop is a lie. 
Like humans are not in the loop. They're in the loop only until a real world starts. And then those humans are out of the loop and the machines will go at it. Am I more worried, like Elon Musk is like worried about these super smart machines killing us all off or taking and controlling us. Actually, before that we get to that point, I'm actually much more worried about what humans will do to other humans. Well, yeah. we, 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 we don't have the best track record. <laughs> there's been a, not a lot of genocides going on. And today, if you look out in the world, there's a lot of horrible things going on. Um, we, you know, human, be I don't, human beings using this technology scares me far more than a super intelligent AI controlling us. In fact, yeah. this, this, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, so, so I, I fully agree with you. So I have to say, Steve, I'm not a big fan of humans. Uh, given their um, record, um, machines appear to be a lot better to me than humans. So I want to go to force three, sort of a human expansion that you have in, in, um, in the third chapter. And so, you know, I always felt that sending humans to, you say, Mars or, you know, some place like that, um, at least on the surface, seem highly inefficient. Um, it, it has to be, I mean, unless you believe that Earth is totally going to be destroyed and you want to save this species for whatever reasons, I, I, I won't be too, uh, too worried about saving the species myself. But, but, but for whatever reason, you know, if you're worried about it, you have to first prove that the Earth is going to be destroyed some way because going to Mars, making Mars great again, seems sort of highly inefficient process. What do you think? So, you know, we have our billionaire boys club out there, you know, launching <laughs> these super expensive rockets into space, you know, or the Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, you name it, you know, they have the money, they can build these super big toys. Now, is it good or bad? Like I'm, I'm a, a it's both, right? So on one hand, it's wonderful to explore space. I mean, human beings are, we're endlessly curious and, and more knowledge about our universe, our place in the universe, uh, the neighboring planets, it's wonderful. Uh, the, you know, where you run into conflicts are, we can't even get our own house in order, Earth, right? And now we're talking about uh, geoforming another planet and making it habitable for humans. Look, we're facing like climate change and we seem to be doing very little in an organized way, putting resources, uh, not nearly enough, let's put it that way, not nearly enough to mitigate climate change. So climate change is coming and, and for you know, everything we see right now, it, we, ha we, aren't, we aren't doing what's necessary to stop it progressing. So the earth is gonna become much more harsh place to live. At the same time, you look at a place like Mars, it's incredibly toxic. It's an, it's like a disaster. Like if the Earth were Mars, we'd all be dead. So <laughs> Mars is a really harsh environment that is going to be take. I mean, the the challenge to make Mars livable for any significant portion of our population is far greater than dealing with climate change here on Earth, and we can't even do that. So if you're going to Mars to save Earth, uh, I don't think you're being exactly truthful. Uh, a lot of these guys are going to Mars for some for because they it's a dream. Others because of hubris, right? They think, oh, I want to be the first person to get humans to Mars. I will be go down in history as whatever. Um, but but is it the most practical use of our resources at this critical point in time? 
And the answer is both yes and no. It's these things are never black and white. So on one hand, why can't we do both? Why can't we go to Mars and solve climate change? On another hand, wouldn't we want like our these leading billionaires, some of the richest and smartest people in the world to be putting a little more time into making Earth more habitable than Mars, which is gonna take, you know, for any significant population, hundreds of years to like really get it to be a, a place you'd wanna live in. Uh, the, re the only reason to colonize Mars now uh, and really put a lot of resources into that, I don't mean explore Mars, explore Mars is fine. Like we should be pushing into outer space. It's really important. But to put all the resources need to actually colonize it would be if we're afraid an asteroid or something is just gonna wipe out our planet. You know, in that case, yeah, let's get a portion of our population off this planet so that our species can continue. Um, if you believe that's a really noble cause. Um, and some people do and some people don't. But my, my question is, uh, what's the chance of an asteroid hitting our planet and totally wiping out our population as opposed to the immediate threats we have from climate change, pollution, we're destroying our oceans, we're having mass, literally mass extinction events on this planet right now. Like, shouldn't we be addressing those? Shouldn't we be prioritizing stopping mass extinction? We, you know, that's happening um, as opposed to spending too much of our resources doing something that may or may not pay off, uh, you know, in some weird scenario in the future. So, so I have two cynical views, Steve. So one is, um, it, it seems to me it's it's sort of a making Mars great again program. So um, Elon uh, had said that he wants to send a million people out there. We got 8.4 billion people. And so what would the selection process be? Are we going to bring our recent president back uh, who has claimed that he's most intelligent and least racist uh, to make the selection decision? or Elon is going to make the selection decision himself. Um, so, so how would he, how, how would he select a million people from 8.4 billion people to populate bars? That's a great question. Like who, who gets to decide? Are they people with money? Are they people with a certain intelligence? Are they people you know, with certain social status? You know, all those things. Uh, but are they going to be your, are you just going to randomly pick a lottery of average people and just blast them off? Or are they the people crazy enough to go to Mars right now? <laughs> because I tell you, you know, it's not going to be a, a great quality of life on Mars for quite some time. It's going to be pretty brutal. So maybe they're the people who have no other options but to go to Mars because their life is so bad here. Who knows what those selection criteria are? Um, but uh, will is, you know, I am less concerned with who goes to Mars because honestly, they're not gonna, it's not gonna be, except if they wanna say they were one of the first colonists of Mars, it's not gonna be the greatest experience. It's gonna be a lot of hard work. It's gonna be really hard. they high chance that they will die in this process and their quality of life will be much lower. What I'm really concerned about, like when, you know, when we talk about our future, is who's going to get access to these great new technologies like gene editing first like if if it can extend my life are we going to have everybody on earth get that or are we going to limit it to you know very wealthy people certain gene therapies right now gene therapies can be insanely expensive you know spark therapeutics which can cure blindness literally uh in children before they go blind you know they start to develop this it's a genetic condition uh they have taken a lot of research that the government actually funded uh, put it into a startup, you know, they now control that proprietary technology that, that they've developed on top of what the government developed. And they're charging astronomical sums for families who are faced with a life decision 
of do I let my child go blind or do we sell our house and every if we, they, they don't have the proper medical insurance and everything we have to keep our child from going blind. So okay. these technologies, you know, in, when we talk about selection processes, um, it applies to a lot of this. You know, who gets the most advanced brain computer interfaces? It could be like the phone where the technology as it goes mass market, uh, the cost of it plummets so much, these gene therapies and stuff, um, that they become accessible to more people. But if they're very niche conditions like this, the blindness is, you know, it's not a common condition, uh, it, then the, the prices will remain very high. And we, we have to start to think about that on a policy and a social issue. You know, do we step in and, and regulate the prices? Is, is there a limit to, you know, when do, when do we say companies are getting greedy and companies or companies need to recoup their R&D cost and the cost of risk, you know, in developing these new uh, services. Because if you don't allow them to be profitable, nobody's going to, no venture capital is going to go into it and it won't be developed. But at the same time, you know, uh, it, it, what limits do we put on them and how do we come to, to terms with what's a fair amount of money that you can make? You know, in real and a lot of capitalists would say, you know, there aren't, should be no limits. You know, if they develop the technology, they should be able to profit from it in the life of their patents. Um, and if somebody else can develop a, a similar technology and undercut them in price, that's capitalism. Um, other people would say, no, it's really uh, immoral to have families bankrupted to get access to technologies they need to save lives or improve, you know, improve their yeah. lives. Th that's a real tension, uh, Steve. So if you restrict innovation, then you won't get innovation. I mean, we have, we have shown that in, in our many political systems. Um, so price controls, uh, sort of prescriptive policies on innovation don't really work uh, well. And then you come to the other side of the equation and you say, suppose I invent something that extends life by 30 years and I'm going to charge a million dollars for it. Um, so only millionaires can extend their life for 30 years. I think all hell is going to break loose. <laughs> yeah, and literally, what millionaire do you know who wouldn't take up that offer, right? If you're rich and you can get another 30 years of quality life, you'll spend the money like in a heartbeat. But yeah, a lot of people won't be able to uh, afford that. So all of these involve, there'll be selection processes in all, in all of these. And these will be very profound technologies. I mean, literally remaking who we are. You know, and, there, and, and there's been a lot of talk as we did genetic editing becomes more and more commercialized and more and more sophisticated that we'll have not only different classes of people, we already have that, but literally different species. Like we could start to branch off. Like we've literally, we've, we, we now know the source code for life on this planet. And we can start, we are starting to code in it, just like we code in computer code. So there will be a point where, wow, we could branch off into multiple different species and with different abilities. And, and we're also seeing at the same time wealth being concentrated, like AI is concentrating wealth, you know, amongst fewer and fewer people are getting incredibly wealthy because it, uh, they can control these systems. And these systems are so automated and and the one who gains the market lead first in, in a technological world, uh, it's a winner take all world. Right. So the Amazons of the world, the Googles of the world, they dwarf any other company uh, and the people who founded those reap the benefits. And 
and, and the people who work at a very high level in those companies also reap the benefits, but the majority of the population doesn't. So we're in all, all these competing forces are around there. And then you have our society to step in. It's very interesting because right now at this point in history, you look at China and China is a very controlling government. It's not a, the type of government we have in the United States. But the Chinese government stepping in and saying these big monopolies like Alibaba and Tencent and JD and, you know, these big companies that have so much monopoly power because of technology or pseudo monopoly power, they're cutting, cracking down on them. Is that the right route to go? You know, um, but do we want our government doing that? Like you said, it stifles innovation. There's all these different uh, ideas around what what uh, what is appropriate for our future. And, and how, you know, China is, you know, for everything Americans don't like about China, and uh, there's a lot of things they're doing that are questionable, uh, one of their main driving goals, at least what they say that it is, is to actually even things out for people, like create a more socially just system uh, for the, you know, so that the, the uh, few wealthy people and, and very powerful companies don't dominate the entire system. So they are running this experiment right now in that direction. And then uh, we have issues in our own government, how to deal with the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, uh, uh, how, do, how, how do we regulate those? It's going to be really, really interesting uh, to see you know, what works and what backfires. Yeah, so Steve, this is sort of a deep philosophical question here, uh, and I'd like to get your perspective on this. So every human being has a different objective function, right? Um, it's not like it's, you know, it's a universally shared. And so we have a lot of policy questions around, you know, uh, minimum basic income, uh, you know, uh, healthcare and those types of things. We have small systems that we can observe, like Finland and New Zealand, that, that have very, very different policies uh, than large systems like India, China, and the United States. Um, there is sort of a philosophical question here uh, for every human being, and that is, what is the objective function you're trying to maximize? Um, if it is happiness, if it is utility, um, you know, area under the curve over you know, a period of time that you're given, uh, it's very different from saying, you know, my objective function is to make sure I live for 500 years. I don't think most people have any desire to, to live for 500 years except for a few billionaires. So um, so we, have, we all have different objective functions uh, and society has a different objective function. So I don't think there are common policies that we can pursue. Uh, at least that's my feeling. Yes, uh, not everybody will agree. Um, you know, it goes back to the great thinkers, you know, the utilitarian thinkers, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Uh, is that the way to proceed? Does that, uh, uh, does that uh, fairly, uh, uh, is that fair upon the whole population? Because when you say the greatest good for the greatest number, it could be the greatest good for the majority, but then the minority gets left out because they're not the greatest number. So you need to be very careful uh, about, you know, generalizing. But I, I do believe there, and there's a lot of people uh, who think along these lines. Is and there's there's optimists out. We've been very pessimistic during this talk. So there there are a lot of Silicon Valley optimists out there who see a very bright future. So we just have to say that because what they see and what they uh, their vision of the future is that there will be an abundance 
an abundance because technology can create, uh, can scale. And technology uh, can scale healthcare at a very low cost. Technology can scale education at a very low cost. Technology can scale productivity, you know, with robots and everything. So there's no reason in the future using technology in the right way, we shouldn't have more than enough healthcare, food, new gadgets, you know, uh, uh, enhanced lifestyle for everybody on the planet. So there is that promise. You know, we, uh, we, we can get to the point where literally our machines, and I write about this, can, you know, do every job a human can do. Even very uh, cerebral people like in university professors and, you know, heads of corporations. And there is literally at some point there will be a, a computer that can do every single job better than a person. That it's just, it, we don't know when that day is coming, but we are headed towards that. So when we get there, what do people do is one question. And is the, the wealth that we create, is it for all of us? Do, you know, do we actually enter a socialist utopia in the future simply because our machines are doing all the work and there is no worker class? You know, there is no, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you can get whatever you need. But there's also this human thing, and humans like to control things, right? We like to, con it's like built into our DNA. Like we like to control our environments. We like to control our lives. Like it's how we have survived, right? Control is sort of a survival thing. You know, if I control things, I have more control over my life. My chance of survival is high. And that means controlling my tribe, the people around me, it means my tribe controlling neighboring tribes, you know, but it, will this tribalist thing come into it where certain people are you know, they don't want to share the wealth, no matter how wealthy they are, they want more. And because that gives them control and that gives them power. So we're going to have these juxtaposing ideals or and forces in the future uh, that we're going to have to navigate. And I'm just, I, you know, what do you think? Where, where, how do you think these things play out? Yeah, I'm a bit pessimistic on this, Steve. So, um, you know, uh, Homo sapiens have been around, let's say, at least 100,000 years. Uh, right from the beginning, we have been very tribal. Uh, we have a Dunbar's number of 150. When it uh, exceeds 150, we started to fight. Uh, and we continue to fight for 100,000 years. Um, we have class systems um, in, in, you know, ancient societies. Uh, we, we have to have... Um, ways to differentiate apparently ourselves from the, the rest of the cloud. So that seems sort of fundamental to Homo sapien that any sort of um, any sort of egalitarian society ideas only appears to work in very, very small scales in few countries. So yeah, I'm not very optimistic. So so, so suppose technology really takes off and provides a lot of advantages. The question will be, how do those advantages accrue to the population? My sense is that it's going to be captured by a very small percentage of the population. And that could well be the case, right? We could well be entering, you know, we're seeing some of that right now. Um, at the same time, to play devil's advocate, look at our world today. Even with all the problems, and we honestly, when you, uh, you when you tune into the news on your phone or on your TV or wherever it is, uh, you we see all the worst news in the world. 
So we feel like the world is worse than it ever was before because it's being broadcast into our faces, right? Um, in a way that it never was in the past. You'd only see your local news. So it was much happier place uh, from your perspective. But in reality, the world has gotten much better. It hasn't gotten worse. People are living longer. People have higher, much higher quality of life, much higher medical care, much better education. All of these things across the board, if you look at the metrics, have improved. So despite ourselves, Despite our human limitations, we are living in a far better world than we have ever lived in in history. Now, the, so the opposite of what you said would be that this trend actually continues despite human beings. And I have a, actually a, a positive look at this. You know, if we rely, if, if we um, rely on human beings, uh, you know, if we, human beings we know are capable of great good and great evil. Right. We just know that. And but we but Elon Musk keeps saying and I quote him because he's always saying something. But he keeps saying, uh, you know, we have to worry about AI taking over the world. We have to worry about these super smart, you know, intelligent machines running everything and leaving us out of the decision making process and and controlling us. I actually uh, posit and I, I do this in the book, too. Why, maybe that's our savior. <laughs> like maybe our machines, potentially our super smart machines, will save us from ourselves. Because let's just imagine one possible scenario. You know, just like when we invented nuclear weapons, it has actually prevented a third world war, right? We probably would have had a we had a cold war, but we didn't have a hot war because it was mutually assured destruction. Imagine a future where these AIs are so powerful, like uh, in the machines that they have, that you know, any war would, would escalate, but the AIs are also programmed to avoid war. And imagine a world in the future where we're, because AIs are so much better at doing everything, we're bringing them in to manage our economies. We're bringing them in to manage our social programs. We're bringing them in to manage our industry. We're bringing them in to negotiate with other countries' AIs, you know? And each of those AIs is programmed to do what's best for its country. But it also, unlike human beings, which were very emotional and we have politics, the AI couldn't just look at it and say, actually, a war would not be a good outcome for either country. We will, we will end up both, you know, really harming each other. Let's figure out a way to solve this. Our AIs actually may be, may be allowing our AIs to run the planet. You know, they could actually deal with climate change. You know, apparently human run governments can't really get their act together to deal with climate change. But potentially AIs could say, look, it's in all of our best interest to cut emissions down like this. And let's work out an algorithm so that everybody's, you know, doing this more efficiently so that we can get climate change down now so that we don't pay the long term costs. You know, humans are very short term thinkers. You know, we're all out like what's yeah. in it for us now. Our AIs yeah. could be programmed to be long term thinkers, data driven thinkers. No, no, I fully agree with you on this. So you, you, the force four in the book is deep automation. As I mentioned before, I'm a big fan of machines, uh, less so of humans. Um, and so deep automation, uh, I think, is, is, is the right way to go. Machines are awesome, especially on repeated activities. Humans are really, really bad on repeated things. They get bored, they get they make, I mean, even in professional arenas like uh, medicine, engineering, legal, um, humans are not that great. I mean, we, we can replace many of these things with deep automation. And I think we are heading in that direction. I think that 
ship. But sir, I can, that, that train has left the stage. <laughs> I don't so, think there is any pulling back on that. No, right? that, I mean, that yeah. you're absolutely right. Uh, machines are incredible at that, and they are only going to get better. Right. So uh, in, in all respects, you know, and the head of Foxconn is like, I don't want I don't he's sort of like you. He's like, you know, if I didn't have to have any humans working for my company, I wouldn't. So he, he's prepared to replace everybody with robots for better or worse in the short term. In the long term, if we have universal basic income, if we have uh, the right social structures in place, uh, we can enter a world where humans don't have to do all those boring jobs where we you, I will tell you, some people worry that, well, if people didn't work, they won't have meaning in their life. Well, I actually don't worry about that because I will tell you, there's a million artistic and other pursuits, intellectual pursuits I could pursue uh, without worrying about an income. It's, you know, if very rich people, do they, are they bored to death because they have everything they need? No, right? They don't have to work. So uh, in a world where everybody's getting a universal basis income doesn't mean people won't be productive. They won't be creative. They won't be social. We are, when we were tribal creatures, we didn't work that much. We did a little hunting and gathering and a lot of time socializing. And, you know, so our future, a future without humans working with, with, where our machines work, I don't think we'll we'll have trouble adjusting to that. I honestly think we'll have no trouble. So I, you know, people are worried about that. The only reason people feel a need to work now, and and uh, is because we attach a, a social not working. If you have, if you're just like goofing off, people look down. There's a social stigma uh, 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 attached to not working. So a lot of people take pride in in their work. But in a future where a machine can do all those jobs, you won't feel that social stigma. You'll say like, why would I do that job? A machine could do it. You know, I don't need to be a lawyer and go over all those contracts all the time. I don't need a doctor doing the same surgery every week, you know, multiple times a day. Um, you would be like, what do I really want to do? And you'd come up and do that. So that uh, to me, it could be a very good, you know, if we, if our systems either run by humans or AIs or a combination thereof, if we can get our act together, we could create a really a wonderful place where human beings actually spend more time caring about other people, engaging in ideas, thinking and using our technologies to explore the universe and explore ourselves. It could be a very positive outcome. I, I agree. Um, I, I hear politicians say sometimes that work is very fundamental. You know, humans need to work to feel the worth or something like that. This is a, these are all legacy ideas. Um, much of the work that we have today that humans do, uh, nobody actually enjoy them, um, enjoys them. It, it's a, this is a false uh, premise that humans enjoy putting nuts and bolts in an automobile or flipping burgers. They don't, they don't enjoy it. They might, <laughs> they might enjoy earning income yeah. and they might enjoy some of the social activities at work, being with the people they're around and they enjoy the status of not being unemployed or unemployable. But yeah, the actual jobs for the most part, a lot of them, people would much rather do something else with their time. I totally agree. So I want to finish up with your last chapter, the intelligence explosion. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, so, um, so I do some work in AI. You know, it, it's um, th these are questions that I've been thinking about for a long time. Uh, so, so there's sort of a deep question on consciousness. I mean, a lot of people are very, you know, uh, enamored by this idea of consciousness. 
Um, there, there are two uh, possible aspects to it. One could say, well, consciousness is, you know, when you get enough intelligence and you get conscious, it is sort of a natural phenomenon. There's nothing to it. Uh, but humans, um, some humans seem to believe that consciousness is something really special that only humans have, which I don't, I don't agree. So, so where do you, where do you stand on this? You know, we get more and more sophisticated machines. At some point, uh, they're going to look very human-like. I mean, they're making human-like. You know, um, humans are very enamored by humans, so they have to make robots human. <laughs> Uh, and at some point, you're going to say, you know, this thing looks pretty human. You know, does it really does it really have consciousness? So, so, so where do you come out on this? So here's where I come out. So I'll, I'll go into consciousness itself first. You know, it's very hard to define consciousness. We don't even know if we're actually conscious. Like, so on a philosophical level, we may be biological machines. We may. Uh, have a veneer where we think we're conscious, like on the surface, but we're, it's all, you know, we, we are not actually, there is no free will. Nobody knows whether that's true or not. Uh, we cannot know. Um, so if we can't even know our own consciousness, do you expect that we could know whether a machine is truly conscious? Well, the answer is no. Like if a machine looks and acts like a conscious being, we will have to assume it's conscious or at least we will, even if we assume it's not, we will have to treat it like it's conscious because it acts like every other conscious being. So we already know, there's another question, you know, can, is consciousness uh, only a, a product of biological uh, creatures? Like, you know, we know that dogs can be conscious and horses can be conscious and dolphins and, you know, elephants are pretty smart. Um, so we know that biological creatures can be conscious in the way that we are conscious, whether we're conscious or not, you know, to whatever degree that is. But um, can, you know, there's certain people who say consciousness can only be produced by bio biology, right? Other people say, no, uh, hardware or hardware uh, could uh, uh, emulate basically the, the connections you need, making enough connections so that if it, it doesn't matter if it's biological or if it's, you know, you know, electronic, you could achieve consciousness. And then there are other people who go even a step further and say, no, all you need is software, like just software could be conscious. No, just algorithms could be conscious. The real, um, uh, the real answer is nobody knows. But what we will be faced with in the not too, too distant future are literally, like you said, humanoid robots. They're building them now, like, and they're getting more and more lifelike. So you'll be hard pressed unless you touch them, maybe, and maybe even if you touch them to determine whether they are human or not in the future. But even more importantly, uh, whether they look human or not, they're gonna start adapting, uh, 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 adopting and, and learning uh, to mimic us almost perfectly. And they will have uh, an intelligence that you know when we hit when I say intelligence explosion, I mean we're approaching AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is you know right now machine learning's all narrow, right? Very very narrow, uh, where you start to get these broader AIs that understand the context of things and think more and more like human beings. The real social issues come in. How do we treat these, right? So there's, um, uh, do they have the same rights as us? These conscious machines, uh, you know, do we make the assumption that they can feel? like that they have uh, feelings like we do, and therefore we need to respect their feelings. Do, and then also, 
if I'm, you know, human beings, we now choose to live with one another. But we know every every marriage and every boyfriend, girlfriend, or you know, couple, partner, whatever, uh, they uh, have issues. Humans aren't perfect. We annoy each other. We don't do everything the other partner wants in, in life. If you had a robot, like as your partner, and that robot was programmed uh, to be the perfect partner for you, you know, intellectually, emotionally there for you. And on top of that, they'll clean your house. They'll cook your meals. They'll like, give you back rubs every night without complaining. They'll take out the trash. You know, how could a human compete with that? Like, and they look like just like whatever you want your perfect mate to look like, you know, whatever your, your sexual preferences are. And this, this being that you're living with would be like the ideal person. Would we stop? Like we think we're isolated now where we're all on our phones, you know, communicating. Would we stop even bothering to be with other people when we can be with these machines that literally fulfill all our needs in, in, in a way that no human could compete with? So in the way that robots and AI may outperform us in the job, someday they may be outperform us in the home and the bedroom, like, like way outperform any human. And it, it, it could be... a it could be very dehumanizing in a way because human beings would prefer to spend more time <laughs> with these machines, whether they're conscious or not, um, than other human beings and become less tolerant of flaws and less able to adapt to other human beings because they are used to being around, think uh, basically machines that are designed to meet all their needs and, and interact in just the way that they uh, want them to. So this is, there's a lot of philosophical discussion on this. There's also discussion around policy. Could a machine that seduces you, you know, that lives with you, that sleeps with you, could that machine, let's say it's owned by a large corporation, would, would they have a power over you? Like we know when two lovers break up, you know, you, you could feel like very insecure and, you know, do anything to keep that, that lover there. If it's a machine, could it manipulate you in in subtle ways that you're not even aware of? What power does, you know, should we be re regulating or restricting the power of these advanced machines that we bring into our lives uh, and and how and how they influence our lives on, on all these different levels I talked about? Yeah, I mean, a lot of social policy issues there. So, uh, like I mentioned, I'm not a big fan of humans uh, and I have no problem with machines uh, looking like humanoids, right? So a humanoid machine is likely a better outcome, I would say, than humans, because, I mean, we can see, you know, we can look back 100,000 years and we seem to have fairly simple objectives. You know, it's food, sex, um, clan, uh, I mean, it hasn't really changed much um, for 100,000 years. And even though we are, you know, very proud of humans, uh, I don't see, <laughs> I don't see a lot of substance there. And so if, if we can make machines better than humans, I think we are very close to that now in terms of design. That's not a bad outcome. So that is why all this billionaires wanting to go to Mars to save humanity has to ask this one fundamental question. Why do you want to save humanity? I mean, what, what, is, what does that really excite you about humanity that makes you save humanity? 
Well, you are definitely a pessimist when it comes to the human race, <laughs> Homo sapiens. I, I give you that. So, <laughs> and with just cause, I mean, we haven't exactly lived up to our ideals. However, I'm not quite as pessimistic. And and I let me give you some hope. So let me give you some hope. If we can create, if we have the technology in the future to create these amazing machines, right, that are perfect, right, the perfect beings, let's say, like, you know, altruistic, you know, they're there, they're, they inhabit the earth, they, they care about one another, and they care about us, they do everything that humans don't. If we're capable of doing that, we also at the same time are developing gene editing. Wouldn't we be able to re-engineer the human race potentially to become more altruistic? more compassionate, more of all these ideals, more, you know, you know, less tribal, you know, more not immediately because, you know, we evolved to be in a world where it was dog eat dog. Like you were literally like you had to survive and it was a brutal, harsh world. That's what we grew up in, you know, and human beings had to fight to, to make it to where we are today. But in the future, in a world where we have these advanced machines literally taking care of us, we don't need those traits anymore. So will we, uh, would it be to our benefit to actually, with the help of AI and all these advanced technologies, to redesign the human race to be uh, a much, uh, to, to be a human race you could be proud of, <laughs> that you would want to be part of, <laughs> even being a pessimist, you would be like, oh my God, human beings are great. We are the best. You know, we've edited out all our bad traits. <laughs> no, no, I see that. I see that, you know, so th that would be a good outcome if you have control over it. It's sort of going from wolf to dog, right? Yeah, um, we'd all become cute make... little puppy dogs. <laughs> but would we lose some of our humanness then? You know, these are deep philosophical questions. You know, some people would be think that idea is abhorrent, both the ideas of us creating machines that are way better than us and, and relying on them, and the idea of us re engineering ourselves, some for religious reasons, others for simply, uh, you know, their values, right? They think humans with all our flaws, that's what makes us human. You know, if we take away those and what are we? We're all just generic carbon copies of each other. Like, you know, these nice loving puppy dogs, like you say, where we, you know, isn't some of what being human is, is all this tension and conflict and, you know, dynamism and, and you know, so there are different philosophies on this and different yeah, yeah, yeah. views. Right. Yeah, I mean, there, there is sort of a, a societal objective function and there's an individual subjective function. So the, the, the risk is that if the societal objective function is defined by few people, then we're going to slip down a path that's going to be suboptimum for society. Hitler, Stalin, some of the recent <laughs> leaders. Um, but the individual subjective function is 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 quite narrow in the sense that I mean you have only few years that you're trying to optimize. So I, as a utilitarian, I think about the area under the curve, right? So time on x-axis and utility on the y-axis. I want to maximize that utility. Um, do I really care about extending that for 500 years? Not really. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me in the grand scheme of things, but some people may, but that's fine. If, if you could live a healthy, happy, productive life for longer, well, I think a lot of pop people would say absolutely. You know, you know, people right now, uh, when, you know, especially as you get older and you have health problems, you know, why would you want to extend it? You know, if you're not going to be, if your health span is much yeah. shorter than your lifespan, it's, you know, most people would, would, you know, once you're, 
in in one of these homes, these assisted living homes, and you can't, you know, have memory problems and all that, life quality goes way down. But if we can eliminate those, I see the majority, vast majority of people saying, absolutely, let me live longer. It'll be a good outcome because, as you know, the, the growth rate is really slowing in the world. So the, the latest projections I saw was between 2040 and 2100, we'll peak at about 9.6 billion total population, and then we're going to drop off very rapidly from there. So at some point, humans are going to be the most uh, important resources on Earth. And so, you know, it would be good. It would be good if we can have, like you say, health span extended. Extending lifespan, we have shown to be not that useful. So all the pharmaceutical products that we have today, uh, extending lifespan is quite expensive and not utility enhancing for most people. But so extending right now, lifespan, but you're talking right now. In the future, right now, yeah, and maybe yeah. think about yourself, right? And a lot of your audience, they're very smart. They've taken years of their life to accumulate all this knowledge and information. You could continue to put that to use. Like if you had a, if you, if both your health span and lifespan increased in sync, right? So you had longer, healthier life, all this wisdom and knowledge and learning uh, and relationships you've developed could be put to further and further use. And if you keep upgrading yourselves and, you know, making your, you know, using latest technology to become more productive there, I think it could have a, a, a significant positive impact. I don't think, you know, you know, we're worried now because a lot of countries like China and Japan and Europe and even the United States, the populations are aging, some faster than others. And so we have too few young people to take care of all these old people. But honestly, with new technologies as well as machines uh, to do a lot of the work that that are, you know, the populations are decreasing and, and aging produce, uh, it could balance out. You know, it could balance out nicely, actually, like you were saying in your projections. Excellent, Steve. Uh, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me on a weekend. Um, and, uh, and 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 uh, maybe we can do another one. <laughs> yes, I love talking I really, to you. Really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, and if anybody wants to reach me, uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn, Steve Hoffman, or you can go to my website, founderspace.com, and you can reach out to me. My books are there, written three books and uh, lots of other, there are lots of videos and stuff, but I would love to come back, talk to you more. I love these type of discussions. Excellent, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.